Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of the Lighthouse writing community to a full year of literary support and involvement at Lighthouse. This fellowship was formed in honor of the remarkable Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education, that much of our most important learning comes from literature, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. The fellowship includes four eight-week workshops per year or master classes, as well as registration, lodging, and board for the Grand Lake Retreat or an all-access pass to the Lighthouse Lit Fest. Nonfiction writer Courtney Zenner was the recipient of the 2012-2013 Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship. Courtney's fellowship culminated with a public reading and celebration on September 7, 2013 during which she was properly feted and shared the fruits of the project she has worked on over the course of the year with an appreciative crowd at the Lighthouse Grotto. Welcome, everybody, to the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship Writer's Buzz featuring Courtney Zenner. Um... So a bit on uh, the Alex Maxine Bowie Fellowship. Um, the Alex Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of Lighthouse, uh, member of the Lighthouse Writing Community, to a full year of literary support and involvement at Lighthouse. Uh, this fellowship was formed in honor of the great Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education. That much of that much of our most meaningful education comes from literature. Um, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. Uh, while Lighthouse has always emphasized accessibility, this award offers a depth and consistency of involvement to the fellowship recipient. Uh, the year-long award period not only engages the writer in directed literary activities, but also allows for full immersion in a project or body of work. So right now I want to honor the two finalists of uh, this year's um, fellowship. I don't think I saw either one of them, um, but I just want to mention this and we'll give them a round of applause. Uh, Adrian Molina and Sarah Micus Martin. Let's give them a hand. Cool. Now, um, is Dominique Christina here? She is not. She is not. Okay, she's not. <laughs> um, is Sherry Codron here? Yes. Yeah, Sherry. So, okay, well, this is what was going to happen. I was going to read the bio, this, this, this great bio of Dominique Christina, who is a slam poet who's going to uh, kickstart things, but I guess she's not here. Um, so then I was going to, that, that, that happened. I, I was going to do my, <laughs> my version, but we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> that would be a disaster. Um, so then, you know, later on, I'm going to uh, introduce the 2013 winner um, with, the, with the bio. So I decided with uh, Sherry's uh, that I wasn't going to do a bio for Sherry, <laughs> that I was just going to pull the last three posts from her Facebook page. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Um, so the third one was a post from a friend that talked about a hike they took to the highest point in Colorado. Hmm. Uh, the second one was uh, Sherry updated her cover photo. 
<laughs> and the third one uh, was uh, a post by Sherry herself that said, bicycles, maroon bells, and my good friend, life doesn't get any better than this. Welcome, Sherry Codron. <laughs> I don't know if that means I should update Facebook more or less. Um, so that was awesome, Dan. You enunciate so well, wasps. And um, make an ask of yourself. I thought that was just, that's great. Speaking of enunciating, um, I wanted, I've been thinking about writing lately for some reason. And all, many of you in here would probably agree, writing is really, really hard. And it's hard on many levels. It starts out with all those words we have to know, like enunciate and wasps. Um, and we have to know how to put those words together in sentences and how to use punctuation and whether we should use long sentences or short sentences and when to vary them for rhythm and is it okay to use a one-word sentence and a one-word paragraph and when are fragments okay and are they really okay ever? And then if you get all that down, then maybe you're good enough to write a brochure. <laughs> And then you move to the story level, and you start learning about what makes a story work, and you have to have this central character who wants something, and wants something so badly that the reader's going to care about whether they get it or not. And the stakes have to be really, really high, and they have to have all these challenges along the way. There have to be this conflict and this tension, and people who help them and people who stand in their way. And ideally, there's a lot of emotion packed in there, because why do we read otherwise and express the emotion we already possess? And then so you get story going, and then you add on it memoir, who I happen to think are the bravest people who walk this planet, because they can't hide behind names um, that they invent or places or situations. Uh, memoirists have to show up with the utmost of courage to talk about what really happened in their life. They have to have the self-awareness to see what happened and to tell it without whining. They have to talk about things that often they're ashamed of. On some level, there's shame in most memoirs. Um, so it's a tremendous act of courage. And then there's all their family members who may or may not end up in the book and may or may not end up speaking to them after the book is published. <laughs> And if they get all of that going, then there's just that emotional, psychological stuff about getting to the computer every single day, which is so hard for anybody who writes. I mean, we have to face that sense that every day we're doing it wrong, and it's going to take forever, and we're never going to get there. And why couldn't we just be a touch key professional at Target? It would be so much easier. <laughs> So very few people have taught um, writing here at Lighthouse for a long time, and I am lucky enough to teach memoir. And I get to see these people that have that rare combination of all of those things, language and story and courage to tell their own personal story. And then every now and then someone like Courtney shows up, which she did a year ago. And I read her first submission, and I thought, I'm out. Can't teach her anything. She, she had it all there. And has continued to get even better. And it's, you guys are in for such a treat. I'm so excited to introduce Courtney Zenner to you tonight, who's going to read from her memoir, In Progress. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you all so much. And Thank you to Lighthouse. This place is phenomenal. Um, so this selection is from an early chapter of my work in progress. It's a memoir called Flight. 
I blinked hard into the harsh fluorescent lighting of Denver International Airport and rubbed my eyes, slogging forward with nearly 100 pounds of luggage. Brett waited outside in the Subaru, seat tipped back and one tan forearm slung over his eyes. I missed my flight, I said to the airline representative at the check-in desk, my voice flat. Diane, her name tag read. I'm supposed to be in Tibet in 24 hours. Maybe the salsa dancing was a bit much last night, I thought. And the last-minute trip to that 24-hour pharmacy, I probably just should have tried going off those antidepressant medications altogether. Well, I'll see what I can do, said Diane. Business or pleasure? She eyed my neoprene-lined expedition duffel and fraying Kelty backpack, zipper seams nearly bursting. Business, unfortunately, I said, my tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth. Adrenaline thrummed through my joints and lit my cheeks on fire. A baby screamed in the line behind me. I closed my eyes. Please, please help me, I thought. A sour taste filled my mouth as I imagined my boss's face in a few hours when he would find out that his new expedition assistant had missed her first flight and therefore screwed up her entire itinerary to Tibet. I would probably miss the jeep caravan to Everest by a whole day. A rock formed in my gut. Diane's fingers flew over the keyboard, a scurrying sound like rats on a hardwood floor. I intend to find you a flight to San Francisco that will, you allow, will allow you to catch that 12-12 nonstop to Beijing. She squinted into her computer screen. And when I set the intention to do something, she added, lifting her eyebrows <laughs> underneath hairsprayed black bangs, it usually happens. <laughs> Diane directed her gaze straight into my eyes for a long moment, then returned to the computer. The printer hummed, and she slid a fresh new boarding pass across the counter. Once you left on the next flight to SFO, it'll be a tight connection. Diane yanked my massive bags onto the scale and slapped tags on the handles. But you'll probably make it. Good luck on your journey. She winked and handed me my passport. I smiled and floated away from the checking counter. Brett was still parked curbside and fast asleep in the driver's seat. Curly brown locks crowned his head and dimples punctuated his cheeks. I had a solid two hours before the flight departed and nothing to do. But there was plenty that we could busy ourselves with in the backseat of the Subaru. Now that I had a moment to reflect on the last 12 hours, I realized that even though Brett had driven down from the mountains to see me off, we hadn't had any time alone together. Between the errands to the Patagonia store, the pharmacy, the supermarket, and the salsa send-off party, it had been a crazy night. I crawled into the passenger side of the car and gave him an enthusiastic kiss on the cheek. But instead of offering a warm and cozy embrace, he grunted and turned to stare at me. So what's the deal? Did you miss your flight or what? I explained my good luck and suggested that we could find a place to park for an hour. Brett stared harder at me, barely blinking his long eyelashes. He narrowed his eyes court. Really? I tilted my head coyly and smiled out of the corner of my mouth. Brett looked down and shook his head. I'm done. I need to get back and go to sleep, he said. The fluorescent lights of the airport lobby glared in through the windows of the car and turned his face a sickly yellow. Oh, I pulled at a duct tape patch on my down jacket. Good luck, court, he said, leaning forward to give me a weak kiss. See you in a month or so. Thanks, I said. 
I glanced past him, noticing that the moon had disappeared behind the horizon. I slammed the car door. The full weight of two nights with no sleep immediately fell on my shoulders, heavier than my backpack had been. I slumped toward the sliding glass doors as the Subaru sped off behind me. Through the glass windows at the northeast end of the airport, I saw the wide open eastern sky, pink with the dawn. I looked back to Diane, checking another passenger into his flight. She had seen my last name on my travel documents, the same last name as my dead father, known by his colleagues as Captain Zenner, one year since the suicide. Did she know him? Should I say something? I thought. But a long line of customers extended before her. Must just be a coincidence or something. A pilot in a navy blue uniform and captain's hat strode across the main concourse several yards in front of me, small black wheeled suitcase trailing behind him. I did a double take. But the last time I saw my father's body was in an embarrassingly thin hospital gown under the rosy glow of the lights of the mortuary, the bullet hole sewn up and made almost invisible on his neck. I shook my head and tears blurred my eyes as my heart began to spill out of my chest. Ugh, I said, and marched on towards security. Flight 1020 to San Francisco reached cruising altitude. I craned my neck and stared out beyond the carpet layer of clouds over the Rocky Mountains. I remembered suddenly how Dad used to tell us about his recurring dream of flying. Without an airplane, just him in the air. He said he never quite mastered the takeoff. Like a prop plane attempting to get off the ground for the first time, he would run, gain some speed and a little air, drop back to the ground, run some more. The way he described it, his smile peeked out beneath his big brown mustache, and he would make the motion of taking off with his hands, a propeller noise with his lips. And he laughed. The moment I took off for the last time and finally launched into flight, I would wake up. I stared straight ahead at the gray foldable tray table in front of me, the only thing I could comfortably view from the middle seat. When he killed himself, I wonder if he thought he would wake up on the other side of all of this, I thought. I shook my head. This trip was supposed to get me away from all that dark and negative garbage. I crossed my arms, closed my eyes, and tried to fall back to sleep. But it was then that the memories began to surface. It was while we were driving, I later learned, that mom had found out where you were, or should I say, where your body was. It was at Castlewood Fire Station, one half mile from the house, deep in the picket fence suburbs of South Denver. You had left your 1993 white Ford Explorer in mom's driveway, sent your well-edited email from the house, and walked 10 minutes to a place where professionals could clean up after you. You had been sitting on the grass, cross-legged, You held in your lap a small, tattered, black leather briefcase containing only your passport, driver's license, and birth certificate so that the firemen could easily identify you. You were swift about the whole endeavor. You found a spot to sit right in front of the fire station but below a small hill that concealed you from the passing traffic. With your cell phone in one hand and gun in the other, you called Castlewood Fire Station to say, My name is Mark. I am outside the building, and I am going to end my life. You followed through. The weekend of Father's Day, we decided, 
was the best time to spread your ashes outside Santa Cruz, California, where your parents lived. We held a small family ceremony in Monterey Bay of the Blue Pacific, over which you had flown many times. We chartered a sailboat called the Chardonnay. In the hour prior to your service, the boat was chartered for a wedding, and a Latino groom and bride carrying pink and orange roses stepped off the vessel as we, a family of 33, waited on deck with a triangular folded American flag and downcast gazes. In the days and weeks that followed your death, we put the pieces of your suffering together. Several years ago, you shared with Andy, your best friend, that you read An Unquiet Mind, a memoir about bipolar disorder. You told him, I have this illness. You refused to see a doctor or confide in other friends or family members because the Federal Aviation Administration forbade any pilot taking psychotropic medication to fly an aircraft. Your identity in the world was first and foremost as a pilot, and you would rather die than be grounded by the company that you had served for 30 years. In the winter of 2006, you had a conversation with me in which you expressed your sadness over the escalation of the war in Iraq and your hopelessness about the country for which, for which you had once fought. You were concerned about military veterans returning home with post-traumatic stress disorder. You were a military veteran, a Navy fighter pilot in Vietnam from 1969 to 1972. At one point in your service, you became so enraged that you punched a locker with your fist and broke the fingers on your right hand. You confided in your brothers that on several missions over North Vietnam, you disobeyed orders and dropped bombs into the ocean rather than on the villages of innocent civilians. Farmers of the sea was how you had once described those people to me, your voice breaking, regret, stabbing the space between each word. A few days before your 60th birthday in 2007, your daughter, Lauren, and your wife, Linda, took you out for a birthday dinner. They noted that you seemed very sad and frustrated about the end of your career with United. Your plan was to move to Seattle and fly cargo jets for FedEx, but you didn't share any specific details about where you would live or when you would leave Colorado. You said you just hadn't had time to figure it all out yet. Your brothers said you caught the biggest tuna on your birthday fishing trip in San Diego, and they thought you were in good spirits. Not yet ready for retirement, maybe, but overall, doing pretty well. After the fishing trip, your sister, excuse me, your sister Audrey had rented a Mustang convertible and took you on a ride up the Southern California coast. You told someone that you had bought a gun. You called your three daughters a few days later, the night before your suicide, to wish them well in their life's endeavors. You spoke to only one of them, me. Your laptop, which you never locked with a password, revealed that you had been editing drafts of a suicide letter for several months. No one knew how to respond when you said you thought you were bipolar. No one knew how to respond when you said you were suffering. No one knew that you believed you were a burden to the world. In your 60 rich years, did you ever know the burden of grief? A few days after your death, a cloudless morning, 
I visited the spot where you left your body with a single bullet. The fire station was tucked behind a small hill on a busy intersection in South Denver, a place where, apparently, professionals could clean up after you. To be sure, there would be dark spots of blood on the grassy hill facing the building. The sod would be marked with the imprint of your heavy body. I would be able to paw at the ground, exactly where you exhaled your last breath, fingers reaching into the earth that cradled you as you collapsed. But when I arrived at the fire station, I couldn't find the spot where you sat. There were no bloodstains, no imprint, no sign of tragedy or departure, only well-laid sod, a chemically greened lawn, identical to every lawn in the suburbs, dotted with a few random yellow dandelions. The fire station's front door, brown and angular and dark under the shadows of the roof, was shut and locked. Cars passed through the busy intersection. Moms taking kids to soccer, high schoolers heading to the mall. I knelt down. Could someone even see this spot from the street? Was anyone walking past who heard the gunshot? Were you seated cross-legged? Were you wearing a polo shirt or a t-shirt? Did you face the fire station or did you face the road? What were the last thoughts that ran through your mind? Were you even aware of your last breath? The short grass blinked back at me. The door remained shut and cars whizzed past. The sun ricocheted off the steel flagpost, white hot and piercing. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney. <laughs> Bravery, you know? Bravery, God. All right, so... <sighs> All right. Um, uh, what we did last year, you know, uh, uh, Laura Bond was our first, you know, fiction fellow... Um, and she read, and then uh, we ended the night with Courtney reading as our nonfiction fellow. So now uh, I'd like to call to the stage after I read her bio, um, Kimberly O'Connor, which is the uh, she is the two thir- uh, 2013 Alex Maxine Bowie Poetry Fellow. Um, she has the the poems that you won with. Is that right? Or. Three of them. Uh, no, they'll put all the poems. Yeah, um, yeah, the three poems. Um, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna switch it up to some poetry. Um, all right. Yes. Kimberly O'Connor is a North Carolina native who moved to Colorado in 2009 via West Virginia and Washington, D.C. She earned an MFA in poetry from the University of Maryland, where she was a winner of both the Academy of American Poetry Student Prize and the AWP Intro to Journals Contest. She has taught creative writing and literature classes at the middle school, high school, and college levels and works now as a youth outreach instructor for Lighthouse. Her poems have appeared in Appalachian Review, Colorado Review, Copper Nickel, Hayden's Ferry Review, Story South, and elsewhere. And she has work forthcoming in Tar River Poetry and Inch this fall. She also writes the blog Poet's Guide to Motherhood and spends a lot of time hanging out with her almost four-year-old daughter, Amelia. Let's give a big round of applause to Kimberly O'Connor. 
Thank you. I'm really honored to have been chosen for this fellowship and to follow Courtney. That was really amazing. Thank you. Um, So I have three poems, and the first one is titled What the Blood Does, and it began when my daughter Amelia, who's now almost four, was 16 months old, and she had this really strange illness that ended up being like appendicitis slash other crazy things. But um, we were, she was in the hospital for a while, and she kept getting her blood drawn, and we didn't know what was going on. And So, what the blood does. It's for Amelia. What the blood does is like God to me. It's mysteriousness, I mean, like its color. Difficult to name, not like anything but itself. No fruit is just that hue, no flower. Liquid jewel filling the vial, your blue eyes opening, closing, lashes black against your pale skin. What they do to you is simple, specific. A two-inch incision under your navel allows the appendix to be removed, the infection cleaned out, and then you'll heal. How it got there is less clear. Sometimes we never know, the surgeons say. For seven days we wait, walk in and out of the hospital atrium amid child after child with other ailments, some explainable, some incomprehensible. The sad-eyed parents share tired smiles or don't. The last day there, they take your... They take your blood again. I hold your hand, or rather hold it down. Whisper my story in your tiny ear. Once, long ago, there was a house on a hill and a garden. The grandmothers gathered the apples, cut them to pieces, simmered them all afternoon to sauce. I breathed the scent and wandered to the bank, looked down at the lake, and I dreamed of you. When the sun set, the water was red. So this poem is called Long Black Veil, and that's also the title of a song. Does anybody know this? It will help me if you know the song. Okay. (laughs) If you don't know it, it's a song that it sounds like a really old ballad, but it was actually um, written in 1951 and um, has been covered by a lot of different artists. But it tells the story of a man who was hanged for the murder that he didn't commit, and um, the reason that he was executed for this murder is that the night of the murder, he was in the arms of his best friend's wife, according to the song, and neither he nor the best friend's wife ever came forward uh, with that information. So um, the epigraph of the poem is one of the, the verses from the song, which is, Now the scaffold is high and eternity's near. She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear. But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans, In a long black veil, she cries over my bones. So several, many years ago, I was at a music festival listening to this song, and I thought it would be so interesting to tell that story from the woman's point of view, the best friend's wife, and how she could both not come forward to save this man and then also wear a long black veil and cry over his bones the rest of her life. So I tried to write it as a ballad and as a short story and all kinds of things, and eventually this poem came that I was happy with that ended up focusing a lot on the veil itself and also um, had some family history come in it. So, Long Black Veil. 
It was a wedding veil. It had been white. Turning from the scaffold, throat swollen with what? Silence it would have to be. She'd walked home with her husband. Perhaps they'd held hands. As soon as possible, she'd found it. Handmade lace dotted with pearls, embroidered vines and flowers, a whole woodland scene in silk, does and fawns peeking from a curtain of willows, noses lifted, tiny ears cocked. Or something older, passed down from a mother or grandmother. Or something cheaper, perhaps they were poor. It doesn't matter, she found it, and she made it black. Ashes, dry, breathable, fire scraps pressing the soft places below her kneecaps, kneeling, ink from an inkwell, ebony, consistency of milk or blood, vinegar-scented, a bowl of blackberries, holding them one at a time between her thumb and forefinger, pressing, juice staining the veil, also her fingers, her wrist. I imagine she lived in the woods, the mountains. Although I want the mountains, they're not mine. I didn't grow up in them, just under. My great-grandmother tried to teach me to crochet, but I wouldn't learn. She knew a storm before its thunder by the way the leaves turned in the wind. I remember that. Once I asked her about my great-grandfather, who died before I was born. Whatever she was doing, she stopped. She was rarely still. I didn't mean to marry him, she said. I laughed. An accident. Like missing a step on the stairs. She'd had a bet with her sister to see who could get a ring first. Thinking she could break it later, she accepted a proposal. But her beau arrived in a borrowed car. Without telling her where they were going, he drove to the preacher's house. I didn't wear a veil, having read that the lifting of one by the groom signified the bride as body passing from father to husband. For others, veil as mere accessory, something pretty to complement the ballerina skirt and beaded bodice, or veil as modesty, preserving the bride's beauty for the groom alone. Norse brides were kidnapped, a blanket thrown over the head of a captured woman secured and subdued her, or veil as privacy, a welcome place to watch. Pearls, tiny pearls, and a haul of three tons, only three or four pearls. From the James River, mussels, or the ocean, oysters, shapes, round, button, pear, circle, drop, sizes, collar, choker, princess, opera, rope. My mother's first marriage was much like her grandmother's. Seventeen, a high school senior, her boyfriend dropped to one knee. She laughed and said her father wouldn't let her. He laughed too, said he'd already asked him. For the honeymoon, they drove to Disney World. She called Collect to tell her parents they were safe, but her father wouldn't accept the charges. Explained when they got back, the call itself had been enough. He didn't need to speak to her to know that she was there. Did she run to him, see see him there where he stood on the scaffold? Maybe her husband found her, took her hand. Maybe her eyes met his. Maybe she cried out as the rope pulled tight. Maybe she looked back at his body swinging, ripe peach on a summer branch. And after... Did she live in the forest? How then to keep the veil black? Mud wouldn't be enough. Mushrooms, their charcoal gills, pulped roots of irises, crushed hickory nut hulls, feathers the crows lost, tucked in by their shafts to the lace. Did she sleep on the ground, under elms? And once did a shadowy moth land beside her in the dusk, its wings, if plucked and smeared, a fine dark dust?
So the last poem is called Matricide. <laughs> I'm just going to read it. Matricide. <laughs> the yoga teacher asks us to sink our bodies into the earth, and I think of when I would die, as though it's something I was thinking of earlier and got sidetracked from, or something I meant to think about but forgot. Not how I would die or when I will, but when I would if I could choose. Not fall, which is now and too predictable, or winter, among everything already dead or dying, or spring, too hard to end in the middle of all that beginning. My mother was speaking not of seasons, or not of weather anyway, when she said if she knew she was getting Alzheimer's like her mother did, she would kill herself if she still had the sense to do it. She wants me or my sister to stab her with an overdose of insulin or push her wheelchair into a pool if it somehow gets past her before she can stop it. My sister won't listen, and I just laugh. We'll be no help. We're driving when my mother tells me this. We passed the place where, when she was teaching me to drive, I turned left and panicked, let off the clutch, and nearly careened into the kudzu-covered, sagging building that used to be the post office. Today it has stormed. The trees are bare. The leaves on the asphalt look like dead birds trying to reach their wings up to... No. The leaves on the asphalt look like dead birds. I'd choose midsummer, hot weather, the kind once it arrives you think can never end. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. That was awesome. Um, It's like an honor (laughs) to to hear these works. Um, It really is. Thank you both so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.